0: Acts chapter 1, in this first book, in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That first book he's speaking of is the book of Luke. This is the writer Luke, this is Dr. Luke that's writing this book right now, and he's referring to the first book that he gave, which was the Gospel of Luke. This is really part two of that. He says, until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And sang. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I want to pick this apart for just a few moments. And I want to talk about the marks of an awakening. Lord... We ask for help, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. As I mentioned last week, my life was profoundly affected by what is known as the Azusa Street Revival. The more I read, the more I was impressed. And in a day like ours right now, where I'm, at least in my time, in my lifetime, I have not personally seen as much confusion and division and chaos socially as I, as I see right now. Now, obviously I was not alive and watching things happen in the 1960s and I didn't get to see some of those things. So I realize and if, I, if you put it in perspective, I, I get that. But what I'm letting you know is when I'm looking at, when, when I just go onto social media or I just turn on the television, I, I, I watch a level of, just take the level of division where you'll watch two people speak and people that often are much closer together than they even appear to be It doesn't seem like that by the time that you hear everything that's going on. Someone throw me a water, please. I would love a water. That'd be great. Thank you. Was that a good throw by (laughs) by Tess or what? Yeah. You want to be part of the missions team, you have to be able to throw things, all right? But when I'm watching this, when I'm watching these levels of of division and discord, and it almost seems unreconcilable. It almost seems like what in the world is going on, right? And yet, a hundred years ago, there was a revival. And in this revival at Azusa Street in Los Angeles, led by a black man with white people and black people and Asian people and Hispanic people, they said it was unprecedented. It was like a sign and a wonder, the way that the color line was removed, the gender line was removed. People, they embraced, regardless of race or gender, they embraced and agreed and loved and got along And this was 1906. My my point in this is, I want you to understand that what happened was that there was a move of God. There was an awakening. There was a revival. And there are so many of the things that we are trying to accomplish right now, and I want to just make this clear. What cannot be accomplished in the flesh can be accomplished in the spirit. Things that seem to cause us to spin our wheels in futility, and things that, People seem to spend decades or generations fighting. It is amazing that when, when the match of God's spirit gets lit, when God lights that match, now let me see if these even work. When God lights the match, it is amazing what happens. Now let's see how long I can just hold on. It is amazing what happens. I'm not going to play with it. <laughs> it's amazing what happens when an awakening takes place, it's, it's as if the, the very things that we've been longing for, they happen there. So I'm reading this about this awakening at Azusa Street, which is quite amazing. But what you come to find out is that was not the genesis of the Azusa revival. The genesis of that was actually William Seymour was a disciple of the what's known as the, the Wesleyan movement. Well, let me tell you about the Wesleyan movement. The, the Wesleyan movement was a movement that went and and made radical alterations to, specifically in Europe, but very specifically in, in Great Britain. There was a, a way in which they said that Britain was almost defined by pre-Wesley and post-Wesley, because before Wesley there was, this, there was great trauma, there was very low interest in spirituality, there was rampant ungodliness, all sorts of things, but the impact that was made on the poor, on the sick, on prisoners, but most of all on multitudes of people turning to Jesus Christ and putting their faith in him, they say that historians say it provided a whole new social climate that took place because of this. But, which is interesting because okay, there's this revival that there was an awakening that happened with the Moravi- with the uh, with the Wesleyans. But where did this come from? I'm going to read you. It was the fall of 1735. John and Charles Wesley were on their way to America, and when they were on their way, they were on a boat with Germans. Uh, there were a group of Germans known as the Moravians. These Moravians were in the, all of them were there, and the Moravians were kind of different than everybody else. Everyone was kind of uh, evil and pushed people around and bullied and the Moravians, they would turn the other cheek and the Moravians would sing when others were or not, you know, were anxious and, and full of strife. And at one point there was a bad storm. They didn't know if the ship was going to crash or not. The Moravians were singing. They were known for their great sobriety, their humility. And as they were singing, they were singing about the, their loving Savior and how he had done so much for them. There was no complaints found in their mouth. But when the waves began to hit and their lives were endangered, John Wesley was wondering, I wonder what they're going to be like when they're in the midst of this, whether they would be delivered from the spirit of fear, as well as all these other things. But as the sea broke over, split the main sail into pieces, there was a terrified... The the English people were screaming terribly, but the Germans calmly sang on. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He said, I thank God, no. I asked, but were your women and children not afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. They know where they will go. After reaching Georgia, he was thinking on this, and he was perplexed by this. And so he was looking and searching out some of the Moravians. He found one who said to him, my, my brother, I have to ask you one or two questions. The Moravian asked him, have you, do you have the witness within yourself Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Which is a good question to all of us here. Does the Spirit bear witness within you? William Booth, uh, the founder of the, actually his wife, I believe, the co-founders of the Salvation Army, would say, never tell somebody if they're a Christian. Only God can tell someone if they're a Christian. Don't tell someone, oh, yeah, you, you prayed a prayer, you must be okay. No, you can pray a sinner's prayer and still not know Jesus. It takes the Spirit of God to resurrect someone. He says, do you have the witness inside of you? I was surprised, and I didn't know what to answer. He observed that, and he asked, point blank, do you know Jesus Christ? To which I paused and said, I know he is the Savior of the world. True, he replied, but do you know that he has saved you? That question haunted him for for months, and he found himself some months later at a street back in London, where the gospel, a commentary in the Gospel of Romans was read, where he heard about justification by faith alone and Christ alone, through faith alone, and his heart was strangely warmed, and he put his faith in Jesus. And the, the world has never been the same since that conversion of John Wesley and then his brother Charles Wesley. But the interesting part of this to me was, Azusa Street, William Seymour, traced roots back to John Wesley. John Wesley traces his roots. In fact, for years, their roots were absolutely tied to this strange group called the Moravians. This group of Moravians were an interesting people. They were There was a group called the Brethren, and the Brethren were a group of people that were the disciples of of a guy named Huss that was a revivalist some years earlier. They had suffered much persecution for their faith. They would, they would be um, literally thrown to the stake. They would shed their blood, and, and they had had much persecution. And there was a man, a wealthy man in Germany named Count Zinzendorf, who had quite a bit of property, wealthy man that ended up opening up his property to let them come onto his property, where he said, Why don't you come here, and we will begin to seek God? And they began to seek God, do discipleship, and they started having this little move of God that on... August the 13th, 1727, a revival broke out, an awakening broke out on that day in that place, at this, this place that they would gather around, this, this house of the Lord on this Count's big property, and there began a prayer meeting that lasted from 1727 until 1827, nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for an entire century. You could say, well, we don't need people just to get around and, and, and just sit around and pray all day. Oh, don't, make no mistake about it. Within three months of them getting together and praying, they were sending out missionaries. By the, by, they say that within the first two years of the awakening among the Moravians, the Moravians sent out more missionaries in two years than the rest of the evangelical church had done in 200 years. They touched the poor, they preached the gospel, they prayed for the sick. It was an awakening, it was a move of God. Now church, what I'm letting you know right now is we are desperately in need of another move of God in our day. We need an awakening. We need a rev- God, send awakening. Start with me. God, send revival. Start with me. God, send an awakening. Start with us. Spread all across the land. Lord, use your people. Use your churches. Use Wycliffe. But send an awakening in Jesus' name. So what are the marks of an awakening? Because when we read the book of Acts, it is my claim that the book of Acts is the narrative of the ultimate great awakening. And I'm going to hit you the the first three marks of this great awakening, and it starts with this. The first mark of an awakening is, the awakening is Jesus-centered. It's Jesus-centered. He says, in this first book, in the first book of Theophilus, I wrote about everything Jesus did. Theophilus just means Theo, God, Phylos, this this lover, the, the lover of God. It's possible this is written, of course, to an actual person named Theo. It's also possible this is a book that's written to anybody that loves the truth. If you love the truth, then you want an awakening because Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you truly want truth, please hear me. You want Jesus. If the truth is what you want, Jesus is the one that you want. The first mark of a great awakening is It's Jesus-centered. It's Jesus-centered. I'm on a missions board, and I was talking to one of the guys that's been there for about 30 or 40 years recently. and He was speaking of a missionary named Bernard Johnson, who was down in Brazil for more than 20 years. He had seen 1.8 million people turn to the Lord. He turned—he saw 1.8 million people turn to the Lord. When he was there, he— he had miracles, there were deliverances, there was healings. It was, I mean, it was amazing. They asked him, Bernard, to what do you attribute 1.8 million people turning to God? And he asked him, was it the miracles? Because there's so many people that were impoverished. And, and when they saw the miracles, that, I mean, literally, people would not have money. And they would go take a rake and, rake, and money would show up in their rake. I mean, they would have miracles like that. They would have people that were going to be dead within a week. And they would get healed and live 30 more years. He said, was it the healings? He said, like, it wasn't the healings. Was it the miracle? It it wasn't the miracles. Was it the, I mean, literally, people would come up and they'd walk down the aisles and slither like snakes and they'd come up with manifesting demons and he would say, demon, stop. And he would just, I mean, right there in their tracks. He said, was it the deliverances? I mean, surely it was the the power. What was it that you attribute 1.8 million people turning? He said, I have but one secret. I always exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. I always exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. I had someone tell me they said, "Mike, I, I bring my friends to Greenhouse because I know you're always going to talk about Jesus. It doesn't matter what it is. I'll be like, wait, how is that going to land on Jesus? Every single page of the Bible points to Jesus. There is no issue that Jesus does not solve. There is no problem that's bigger than Jesus. There is nothing that's greater than Jesus. He says I always exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. I got a we got we get missions reports. We give I mean fifty percent of everything we spend goes to missions in the poor. And I got a missions report uh, that I was looking at recently, and I was thumbing through it, and and I, and I kept looking, and I was I was reading page after page after page after page, and I could not find the name of Jesus on the missions report. And I and I'm not just trying to nitpick here. What I'm just letting you know is I've only got confidence in one name. I do not have confidence in the name of greenhouse. I do not have confidence in the name of a denomination. I do not have confidence in the name of Mike Patz. I do not have confidence in the name of Tom, uh, Dick, Bill, or Harry. I've only got confidence in the name that's above all the other names, the name of Jesus. The Bible says whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. So I get it when someone's like, well, we're trying to kind of play it like we're kind of like undercover. Listen, friends, I got to be honest with you. When you don't know what else to say to someone, I think it's very appropriate at times to walk up to someone and say, I come in the name of Jesus. How can I pray for you? You're like, do you have something better? I'm sure there might be a better way. I'm saying when all else fails, go ahead and drop the name. Because it's the name above all the names. I don't know how to explain how this name literally makes demons tremble and, and, and mountains tremble. And it makes hearts soften. That literally the name of Jesus is It's like a strong tower. In the book of Acts chapter 9, there was a, a man who was very sick. His name was Aeneas. And here's how Peter healed him. He said, Aeneas, the Lord Jesus makes you whole. The Lord Jesus heals you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you guys plagiarize this. When you see a sick person, you could try this. In fact, why don't we try it right now? In fact, why don't you say it to this someone next to you? They might not even be sick right now. Why don't you just say, the Lord Jesus makes you whole. I think sometimes we're like, wait a minute, I don't have the power to heal. Fair enough. But you know who does, and he's inside of you. Power of life and death in your tongue. Go ahead, and try it one more time. The Lord Jesus makes you whole right there online, if there's someone that's watching, you're homesick right now, I'm going to say it like a prophecy. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to say, the Lord Jesus heal you today. Be strengthened today. Be made whole today. See, the awakening, it's it's Jesus centered. It says, "I, I wrote this of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Of all that Jesus began. It's Martin Luther King weekend and I was uh, you know, I, I, I was reading some Martin Luther King stuff recently. I really love reading his father, you know, Papa King, Daddy King. But, but I was reading the, his list, just really interested, because he had ten commandments that he wrote for anyone that was going to march with him in his nonviolent protests. He had ten commandments. These ten commandments, only the tenth one actually dealt with at the actual marching, followed the directions of the movement and the captain on the demonstration. So that was the only one. All the rest of these had to do with other things, but I want you to notice number one, because commandment number one, if you wanted to march with Martin Luther King Jr. was, you had to meditate daily on the teachings and the life of Jesus. When you hear people talking about, oh, the, the greatness of the civil rights movement, well, let me tell you about the greatness of the civil rights movement. If you asked Dr. King, he would tell you, We meditated, literally it's Acts chapter 1 here, I I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Meditate daily on the teachings, and in other words, Acts chapter 1 verse 1, that's what you got to do if you're going to go march with me. Now when people would ask, how did you guys remain so different than everybody else while you were doing your thing, to which he would say, well just go look at command, leave it up there for a second, so people see it, so he could see. That's what commandment number one, I mean look at number three, walk and talk in the manner of love for God is love. Pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free. Friends, do you understand, do you understand now how God can use such a thing? See, the, mar, the first mark of an awakening, it's Jesus centered. Then it says he presented himself alive in verse three, after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them for 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, I, I just want to get clear on this. Jesus, he, he, come, he rises from the dead, and he comes to make sure they understand for 40 straight days, I have physically raised from the dead. I was physically buried for sins, and I physically rose in glory. I am physically alive. I historically, physically died on a cross, was buried in the tomb, and I've risen and he showed them by many proofs. Now, I want to be real clear with you. I, I love apologetics. I believe in apologetics. I was reading yesterday, seeking Allah, finding Jesus. I love apologetics. I, I, I just want you to understand that apologetics tend to help believers, not unbelievers, so much. Okay? If you don't want to believe, all the proofs in the world aren't going to believe Jesus tends to give the proofs to people who already love him and already believe because he's not going to force someone to believe by just manipulating their brain. I'm not saying I'm against apologetics. I'm not saying I'm against using the powers of persuasion to remove unnecessary barriers. What I'm telling you is there's only one way that people come to faith in Jesus Christ, and that is he raises them from the dead from the inside out. He has to speak to a heart like a dead man named Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. He is the resurrection and the life, and I know this is, this is a little you know, concerning for people. I do believe in the depravity of humans and only the sovereign act of a mighty God speaking to a dead body. Lazarus didn't rise from the dead because he chose in some way to respond. He responded because Jesus' voice has power. And when Jesus speaks to a soul and says, you are mine, something just happens. Now, the sooner you respond, the better. All I'm trying to make the point of here is there's something about understanding that Jesus comes and presents himself, but he needs them to understand, and he's doing this with believers. These are believers. He says, do you understand? I am risen from the dead. This is, what's the, this is the gospel. So it's one thing to meditate on Jesus' teachings and his life, But if you don't get his death and resurrection, you're never going to get the full package because you need a God who has come and given himself for you to be able to say like Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Why? It's because Christ who loved me and gave himself for me has risen from the dead. I was listening to a Presbyterian preacher that was talking about that old school question. What would you say if someone came up to you and said, if you died today, where would you go? In fact, I would ask you, if you died today, where would you go? And I realize that's not like a cool question these days. People say, yeah, the, the kingdom's not just about going to heaven when you die. It's about uh, earth when you're alive. No, I get all of that. I get our eternal life starts now. Amen to all of that. But there's a pretty substantial thing when you're going to be alive for billions and billions and billions of eternal years. And you're alive for this life. Where are you going to spend the billions and billions? And Where will you go when you die? It's a good old school Coral Ridge Presbyterian evangelism explosion question. Where would you go when you die? Because if you answer in the first person, something's wrong. Well, well I, I would go to heaven. Well, why would you go to heaven? Well, because, because I am a good person. 100% wrong answer. But, but because I went to church, wrong answer. Because I tried, wrong. Because I prayed, no. Because I helped the poor, no. Because I marched, no. Because I did justice, no. Because I cleaned up my, no. The only acceptable answer is to answer in the third person. Because he lived for me. Because he died for me. Because he chose me. Because he called me out. Because he did what no one else could do. Because he loved me. Because he gave his blood for me. Because because he made me his own, because he adopted me. If your answer is anything other than the third person, you haven't gotten it yet. You haven't gotten it yet, and this is great news. It's like you can imagine that like the thief on the cross, you know, there he is he thief on the cross, and, and imagine him showing it before the, the angels of heaven, trying to get into heaven, and he says, well, you know, what are you doing here? I mean, imagine that if you know the story of the thief on the cross. Jesus is crucified between two thieves. They, they both curse him, but something happens bet- you know, in, the, in a number of hours where the, the thief on one side, he somehow comes to believe and says, Lord, you know, remember me. When you get in your, into paradise, remember me. And, I, and a lot of times people say, like, that's just some cheap little thing. Like, oh, yeah, uh, it's a deathbed confession. D- you do understand. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This thief had some serious faith to be able to look at a man who looks utterly defeated and to somehow have eyes of faith realize, oh, this is the king of kings. If you're able to look at a dying, crucified criminal and say, that's the king, that's faith. He says, "Lord, believe me. Remember me." Jesus says, "All right, you, you can. I'll see you today in paradise." So imagine he shows up in paradise, shows up, and the angels like, "Well, why should? What are you doing here?" He'd say, "I don't know." Well, well, like, why should I let you in? He's like, "I, I, I don't know." Like, well, well, what's your position on, on the doctrine of the scriptures? He'd, he'd say, I, I, I don't know. He'd say, "Well, what's your?" position on the doctrine of, of salvation by faith alone, in grace alone? He'd say, I, I, I don't know. He'd say, what's your position on women in ministry? He'd say, I, I don't know. What's your position on critical theory? He'd say, I don't know. What's your position? And he'd go, he'd go through, he'd say, well, then, then what do you, why are, then why are you, why should I let you win? He said, he would say, because the guy on the middle cross said I could come. Wait, why are you here? Because the guy in the middle cross said I could come. Who invited you here? I mean, guys, that's my story. Like, my story is, if you asked me, where are you going to go when you die? I'm like, I'm going to be with God. How do you know? Because the guy in the middle cross said I could come. It is not me. It's not my goodness, my righteousness, my works, my worth. The guy in the middle cross he did all of it. Friends, that is the center of Je- every great awakening. It starts with this Jesus center where we lean completely on the finished work of Jesus. And if you need a little fresh reminder today, let me give you a little reboot on this. He loved you, and he loves you, and he gave himself for you, and you're invited, and you're accepted, and you're adopted, and you, you are welcome. As they say in, "Ghana, you are welcome," is everywhere I'd go in Ghana, I'd say, "You are heaven's the place where they say, "You are welcome because the thief and the thieves and the sinners and the adulterers are welcome because the, the dude on the middle cross said you could come if you'll come by faith." The, today, if, if you need to get that reboot again. We're in the middle of the prayer and fasting, but just so we're clear, we don't fast to strive to to twist God's arm to earn some favor from God. We've already got all the favor of God. We've already got it all. That's why we do. I, I don't pray to get, I don't read my Bible to get God to love me more. I read my Bible because it helps me love Him more. That's why. Number one, the Great Awakening, it's it's Jesus centered. It is Jesus centered. Number two, it's action oriented. The Great Awakening is action-oriented. In verse 2 it says, until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The the, the Great Awakening, it's founded on grace, that you rest in the finished work of Jesus, but you respond to that finished work of Jesus in action. I I, I was reading this week the, the letter from a Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King, if if you've never just read it in one sitting, it's good just to read it in one sitting. Notice, if you do, how many times he uses the word action. Action. Of course, he's in, he's in a jail in Birmingham, and he says, we are here because injustice is here. But he says, we're taking action because many people are pushing back and saying, why are you taking action What you need to do is wait. He's like, no, 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 we must take action. And justice doesn't go away by thought, it goes away by action. We're reading a book that's called the Book of Acts because it's a book of actions. Now, I've been on Twitter a lot recently because the Gators got a new head coach, and I've been very interested in who the Florida Gator football team is going to have on their team. And so there's been a lot of drama online sometimes because you would have some... Twitter fans that go to all the Gator games that are spectators that are criticizing some of the Gator football players that play on the field. And I just wanna point out, there are very different concerns between spectators and between players. When someone's a spectator, they're up in the stands and spectators see things and they hear things, they can chat with the players, they can criticize how they run and how they kick, they can discuss questions about the field, they can pontificate about the boundary markers, they can talk about if the refs were making good calls or not. But I want you to be clear about this, all of you spectators, you are nothing but an onlooker. You're an onlooker. The players on the field that have a 350-pound grown man running at them with nothing but muscle, and they're running right at them in a split second, and they've got to make a choice where to go, and occasionally they make the wrong choice, so they drop a ball. They've got very different concerns than you do in your theory as an onlooker. And when people are on Twitter or in the stands criticizing them, they need to understand what some of the players said even this past week was, hey, we love you fans and everything, however... Have you ever had a 400-pound man fall on top of you? Have you ever had your head banged by two people at the same time? Because the concerns and the interests of the player are highly practical, Meaning, they're not talking about the theories and the philosophies of the boundary lines and the markers. They're trying to figure out, how do I get this piece of pigskin to cross that white line up there called a goal line to get points? Because at the end of the game, I want to win a game. I'm trying to get over there. Now, someone could say, you know what? I don't know that philosophically it works to run out of the pocket or or to run a play like this. What the players would say is, we're going to do what works because our concerns are highly practical. Now, I'm letting you know that because we're reading the book of Acts, which is a very practical book. And it says, I'm writing about all the things, that the commands that Jesus gave to his people. So what that means is, we can come to certain things in the Bible. Like, we could talk about the doctrine of sin. Right now, in America, there's a lot of argument. that We're not using these terms. There's a lot of argument about the doctrine of sin. Okay, People are trying to, well, we're pontificating about, well, let's talk about sin. Is sin is it personal? Is sin corporate? Is sin private? Is it public? Is it structural? Is it systemic? And those are all questions that spectators have the liberty of trying to figure out. But when you are on the field, and you're trying to actually score points, and you're trying to actually bring righteousness, and trying to actually bring justice, if you're trying to go do that, at the end of the day, the only way the match gets lit is when you go and you say, wait a minute, we've got to go score points, I'm going to look at sin, I'm going to realize, wait a minute, sometimes I have gotten rid of my sin but I have found that a bunch of us still have certain tendencies that lead us. Like I could stop my sin pattern but if I'm in a family that's got sin patterns that don't get broken, if I've got curses that have still not gotten broken on the field, I'll be like, why can't I seem to ever get in the end zone? I keep on kicking field goals because sometimes it's going to take a breakthrough of our understanding and sometimes it takes a breakthrough of understanding. God's not just looking for theories, philosophies, and doctrines that don't work. He's looking for action on the field that wipes out sin, wipes out unrighteousness, and wipes out injustice. I'm calling us to actions. To actions. This Every great awakening, it's been, it's been known for its actions. Jesus did talk. He did teach. He did explain. He did tell stories. But every time he spoke, something happened. Let there be light. Something happened. Lazarus come forth, something happened. When I'm preaching right now, I'm hoping something's gonna happen from what I say. When people go out and say, church was good, what did he say? Don't remember, but it was good. Nothing happened. (laughs) Nothing happened. The awakening, it's 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 gotta bear the fruit when John Wesley would go out and they would they would preach, and when they would preach, things would happen. Little children used to have to work and they would campaign against these Westians. Would say six year olds should not have to work, just go preach the gospel. He said, Oh, I am. But wherever the gospel goes, there should be action, there should be stuff. The stuff should happen. Let me let me tell you guys, man, you, I, I commission you go heal sick people this week. Go fight injustice this week. Go stand up to bullies this week. Go work the works of Jesus this week. You could say, oh, that, that feels like, it, it, you know, it's, it's, when you've rested in Jesus, you get up and you go, you move in his power. And, and, it's, not, it, and it's not even a, a work. It's like, it's like a flow. If you abide in me, he said, you're going to bear fruit. You don't pump fruit out by trying. You just, you just bear it. The, 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 the move of God, it's, it's action. And then finally, number three, the awakening, it's spirit-powered. He says, while they were staying with him, he ordered him, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. You heard this from me. John baptized with water. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In 1.8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. The awakening is spirit-powered. I I do want to be honest. Jesus says in, where is it? In John 15, 26, he will testify of me regarding the Holy Spirit. He will testify. You know it's the Holy Spirit when he's pointing to Jesus. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. You will never do the work of pointing to Jesus on your own. It's got to be the Holy Spirit's help. We can't just tweet stuff. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. I can't just get up and preach. I'm, even right now, I'm like, Lord, may your spirit empower what I'm saying. I mean, I've got words, but you are the word. I depend on you, Holy Spirit. Breathe life into this vessel. So I, I live in the city, and, and there's uh, Gainesville Regional Utilities is, is my utility carrier. And several months ago, I was in my house and my, one of my appliances stopped working. And then one of my other appliances wouldn't work. And I, I mean, it would work a little bit, but not really. And I, I didn't know what was going on, you know. So I'm trying to cook things, and you can't heat anything up, and you couldn't dry clothes or wash clothes. And, uh, you know, we have eight children. We have a big family, and, and uh, the, we, you know, we do laundry like every 15 minutes, it feels like, you know. So uh, we do dishes every four minutes, it feels like. So it was, it was a real crisis, I couldn't figure out what was going to happen, thinking I would have to replace my appliances. I finally called the utility company who came out, and what they discovered was that the, 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 you know, the, the line that was running from the transformer to my house underground, it had melted. And so my electricity, it was instead of, and I don't, know, I don't remember what the exact details were, but the electricity that should have been at something like 240 was only running at 120, so he said, so you're probably confused because you've got en- enough electricity to run your lights, but you don't have enough electricity coming to dry your clothes. When I talked to him, I said, "I said, Lord, if ever there was a parable of the modern church, it's that. Enough power that's running to, to keep enough activity going, but not enough power to see the juice get loose and to see the stuff happen. And, church, I just want to say it. I want the stuff to happen. I want to see the stuff. I'm not following Jesus in order to see the stuff, but the one who told us if you receive power, the stuff is going to happen. You are supposed, here's the order you realize there's trouble. That's step one. There's trouble. There's trouble. You begin to pray. You pray. When we pray, we're in awe of God. And then there's this revival. When we pray, there's this, that's when the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, it's like a lighting of the match. When you pray for the sick at 240, it's different than when you're praying with the sick at 120. When you speak to somebody at 240, it's better than when it's 120. Now, don't get me wrong. I'd rather you still go out and I'd rather you still go be loving, joyful, and, and kind and pray for people and sh- do all of those. What I'm telling you is there. what we see Jesus saying here is, I'm about to launch an awakening, but here's the deal guys. I know you know the gospel, but you're still not ready. I know you know me. You're still not ready. Up until this point, you even remember in the book of John, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit inside of them. The Holy Spirit already lives inside of you, but you're still not ready. I know you know the gospels. You're still not ready I know there's 11 of you now and you got more you're still not ready what else do we need go wait for the promise of the father why Jesus because then you'll receive power don't we already have your spirit in us you do but you get power when the spirit who is already in you comes upon you in power now you've got a power that takes the 120 and puts it at 240 Now there's a lot of controversy on this, and I've heard people argue about this for years and years and years, but this is just the issue of, of the spectators versus the players on the field. Because the spectators in the stands have the liberty of arguing about, do we not receive all of the Holy Spirit in the moment that we are regenerated by the Lord himself? Does the scripture not teach us in 1 Corinthians that all of us have been baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation? Have we not received? Is there any more of God to receive than the amount of God that you received at the moment that you believe? Let me read to you from one of the guys that I really love very much, just you know, one of the great theologians of the last 50 years, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this. During the last year's, um, this, this notion of visitation, of baptism of God's Spirit of the, upon the church has left us. We, people have stopped talking about getting a visitation. There are several reasons, but the most theological reason for this is the prevailing indifference of revival is this view that the Holy Spirit was given once and for all on the day of Pentecost and that he cannot be poured out again. And therefore, there's no use in praying for the Holy Spirit or for revival. He says, no. Here is the first principle. I am asserting that you can be a believer That you can have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and still not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that is done by the Lord Jesus Christ, not by the Holy Spirit. Our being baptized into the body of Christ is the work of the Spirit... That's the point of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, as regeneration is his work. But this is something entirely different. This is Christ's baptizing us with the Holy Spirit. And I'm suggesting that this is something which there is therefore obviously distinct and separate from becoming a Christian, being regenerate, having the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Those people who say that the baptism with the Holy Spirit happens to everyone at Regeneration seem to me not only to be denying the New Testament, but to be definitely quenching the Spirit. What does this mean? This means that when you become a Christian, God puts his Spirit in you like a pilot light on a stove. And that's never going to go out. He's not going to go away. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. But when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, it's like taking the pilot light and turning it up, which is why, friends, it is very appropriate to pray this prayer, Jesus, fill me with your spirit now. Even this week, I was walking through these chairs, and I was like, God, I pray there will be people sitting in chairs that will be filled with the Holy Spirit when I'm still talking. I was praying about those of you that would be watching online, that wherever you're sitting right now, that you would be filled with the Spirit even while I'm preaching. That this week, when you go into your week, that you're going to have a moment where you're like, man, I don't even know what to do right now. And you will know this is one of the the most great, greatest prayers you can pray. Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Jesus, fill me with your spirit. And I don't want you confused theologically. You've already got, if you belong to Jesus, now listen, if you don't belong to Jesus, the coolest thing in the universe is going to happen when he's going to breathe his spirit into you. He's going to put his very spirit in you, never to leave you again. But if his spirit is inside of you, that's Ephesians chapter one says, the moment that you believe, you get sealed with his spirit. But Ephesians chapter five says, to be ongoing, consistently, over and over, filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. Being sealed with the Spirit is a one-time, at regeneration, at the moment of salvation, God's Spirit comes to live inside of you forever. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the ongoing experience and encounter, and dare I say it, the players on the field know the difference I was talking to a missionary from another missions organization that is from a denomination that does not believe in Holy Spirit stuff. They forbid anyone to speak in tongues. They forbid spiritual gifts. I said, what do you do on the mission field? He said, are you kidding me? In the the nation that I'm at, there's so much activity. We deal with demons every day. Are you kidding me? The only way we have survived was to get filled with the Holy Spirit. We move in the Holy Spirit. The only way you're scoring touchdowns in this league is to get filled with the Holy Spirit. Mike, how do, I play this ser- how do I play this sermon? Ask for the Holy Spirit. You could say, well, I've already got him. No, I get it. I, that's what I'm trying to give you the theological understanding here. By asking for the Spirit, you're not asking to get saved all over again. You're asking to be filled with the fullness of the Spirit that's already in you. You're asking to go all the way, and the promises of what Jesus said is true. But Martin, L- Martin Lloyd-Jones went on to say, when Christians would tell him, listen, when you've met Jesus, you've got all the Holy Spirit that you need, to which he says, got all you need, you say? Then where is your joy, and where is your peace, and why so much anxiety, and why so little power, why so little passion, why so few souls getting saved, why so few healings, if you've got everything you need, why, are you do- why is there so little fruit from that taking place? Bam! Lord, I ask for your Holy Spirit. We ask for it. When I was reading about these Moravians, these Moravians, they said their first passion is the Lord Jesus Christ. Their first, his, their first passion, this is what they said about them. They said their prayers, their litanies, their hymns, their conversations, their sermons had but one theme. The wounds of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus, and the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. They were obsessed with Jesus, but they had a second obsession, the experience of the Holy Spirit. Church, oh, that we would hear the voice of our forefathers and mothers who would tell us, do you want an awakening? The first mark is Jesus. The second mark is action. And the third mark is the Holy Spirit ask for the spirit because when you do the holy spirit's going to help you point to jesus when i'm reading all these people on twitter i'm reading all these christians right now in the news i'm like i know you're saying his name but you're not representing jesus because a lot of people are posting on facebook like prophets but i'm afraid that the word of the lord right now is they have gone forth but i did not send them they have spoken but i did not put my words in their mouth We need prophets again that speak in the name of Jesus. Oh, church, I want us to be those that when we speak, we speak like the very oracles of God. That if God's not speaking, we shut the heaven up. And when God is speaking, we speak with boldness. And we don't care if we lose a job, if we lose a follower, if we lose a friend. If it's God, it's us, and Jesus, we're with you. But I'm going to be honest with you. You'll never do that. Till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when the Holy Spirit does come upon you, you totally will. You're like Stephen. When when the when you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're gonna be like Peter. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. You'll deny me. I'll never deny you. I'll never deny you. Push comes to shove, I deny him. And then that same Peter who denied him just, just months earlier, all of a sudden on the day of Pentecost gets up and speaks with a boldness, all of a sudden he's getting persecuted. Where'd that boldness come from? The Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit. Some of you have never been filled with the Holy Spirit, and you need to be. And I really would prefer you to get over all the drama of like, well, the, the way charismatics teach it, or I, you know, I, I, it's been my mission in life to prove that you can be filled with God and not prophesy or not speak in tongues. Why don't you just pray, God, I receive every single thing you have for me. I'm cool with that. Like, I really am. Let me tell you a story and then call us to get filled. Some months ago, we have a lot of kids, and and I'm not a detail person. I came to church, my wife came to church, and one of our children was left home alone, little Arella. We don't have a, a landline at our house. She doesn't have a phone. We get to church. We don't figure this out until the end of second service that we've left our daughter home alone. She must be freaking out. When I get home, I, I go to her, and I'm obviously so sorrowful and so, you know, it's such an epic daddy fail. And I said, "Baby, what would you do? She said, oh, daddy, I was so scared, but I turned on church online. I was hoping she would say, as soon as I heard your preaching, I just felt peace. <laughs> Which is not what she said. She said, daddy, I was watching you, but I was, I was so scared. But as a family, we've been praying that every single member of our family would be filled with the Holy Spirit. She said, so I asked Jesus to fill me with his spirit. And all of a sudden, all my scaredness went away, and I started to feel peace and joy. And it just came upon me. And, Daddy, I think Jesus filled me with his spirit. And and she was just, like, lit up. So I'm looking at my little nine-year-old daughter, who I'm expecting to be freaking out or, you know, calling the authorities to say, hey, someone needs to come take care of me properly. And instead, she's like bouncing off the walls, telling me, Daddy, I love the Holy Spirit. So yesterday, we were praying about today. And that little girl says to me, Daddy, I want to see a revival. And I was like, me too, baby. And church, that's what I want to say to us. I want to see a revival. I want to see an awakening. I want it to start with us. But I'll tell you what lights the match. It's not by might. It's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I I ask that the power of the cross and the blood and the resurrection is going to have its effect on us. Lord, I ask for players on the field, not spectators in the stand. Lord, I ask if anyone doesn't know you that's in this gathering online or in person today, they're going to know you in the next five minutes, that they're going to turn to you, that you will call them, that they will respond. And Lord, I pray that anyone that has never been filled with your Holy Spirit is going to get filled.